0: to Some Very Famous People You've Never Really Heard Of, bite-sized biographies of the famous, the infamous, and the quirky in less than an hour. My name is Philip D. Gibbons, and there is more information about me, this podcast, and a bibliography at someveryfamouspeople.com. There are also photographs of many of the individuals and items mentioned in this podcast. At the conclusion of Part 2 of this presentation, there will be additional suggestions concerning further information about today's subject, John Wilkes Booth and the assassination of Abraham Lincoln. Now let's get started with part two. As John Wilkes Booth vanished into the night, inside Ford's Theater, pandemonium reigned. While most patrons wandered the aisles in confusion or screamed for vengeance and pushed towards the stage in an attempt to chase after the unknown assailant, an Army surgeon, Charles Leal, focused on the presidential box. He clambered up to the entrance, joining a dozen other men who were attempting to gain entrance. Fighting off shock and unconsciousness, Rathbone eventually made his way to the door and removed the wooden impediment. Leal and others poured inside, the surgeon introducing himself to the hysterical First Lady. The president was quickly lifted out of the rocker and placed faced up on the floor, Leal cutting away at his coat and upper garments to determine the location of Lincoln's injury. He eventually found the bullet hole, noted Lincoln's dire condition, and decided to dislodge the blood clot already placing pressure on Lincoln's brain. Additional artificial respiration revived both a heartbeat and breathing, but Leal was realistic. To the hushed onlookers that included Mary Todd Lincoln, he issued his prognosis. His wound is mortal. It is impossible for him to recover. It was suggested that Lincoln should immediately return to the White House, but Leal knew the president's fragile condition would never tolerate such a journey. The president was lifted by a half-dozen men, who conveyed him through the lobby, into the street, and towards the first private house that was accessible. While the crowd pressed forward toward Lincoln's entourage, a soldier raced ahead to the nearest doorway of a private home and pounded on the entrance. It didn't open. Nearby, at a boarding house owned by William Peterson, an occupant heard the commotion and opened the door at 454 10th Street, he yelled to the group to bring the president inside. With Leal leading the way, Abraham Lincoln was carried up the front stoop and conveyed indoors to a small rear bedroom, the current occupant out celebrating. The quarters were so tight and the bed so small that Lincoln had to be positioned diagonally. Any soldiers present began the process of clearing the house of all but essential doctors and government figures, but the bedroom remained a crush around the mortally wounded Lincoln. About a mile away on Madison Place, the home of Secretary of State William Seward, was also the scene of terrible carnage. Seward was already convalescing from the effects of an April 9th carriage accident that broke his arm and jaw. Lewis Powell would use these injuries to gain entrance to Seward's brick mansion. David Herold, a pharmacist's assistant by trade, helped concoct a small butcher paper package tied with string that Powell would claim was medicine prescribed by Seward's doctor. Powell and Harold waited until the rooms of the mansion were darkened and the occupants were heading for bed. As Harold looked on, Lewis Powell handed him his horse and made his way to Seward's front door. A black 19-year-old servant named William Bell answered the knock. In front of him stood a well-dressed man with a small package. Powell claimed he had medicine for Seward and even knew the proper name of the physician. Bell accepted this explanation, but became adamant that Powell would have to leave the medicine with him. Powell ignored him, pushed his way inside, and began to ascend the stairway to the second floor. At the top of the stairs stood Frederick Seward, son of the secretary, who also requested that Powell give him the medicine as the secretary was asleep and could not be disturbed. Powell again insisted that the medicine must be delivered personally. Unbeknownst to Powell, Seward's bedroom was only a few feet away. At this crucial moment, Seward's daughter Fanny, who was bedside attending her father, opened the bedroom door and told her brother that actually her father was awake. Now Powell knew exactly where his prey was, but rather than aggressively barging his way in, he continued to argue with Fred Seward, who insisted he either leave the medicine or go back to the doctor. Powell seemed to acquiesce, but in the split second of walking down the stairs and satisfying Seward's son that he was leaving, he quickly whirled, drawing a pistol from his coat pocket. Pointing it directly at Seward's face, he pulled the trigger for what should have been a fatal gunshot. The gun misfired with an ominous click, but Powell began to pistol-whip the smaller man into submission while William Bell ran down the stairs and out into the street shouting, "'Murder!' at the top of his lungs." After beating Fred Seward half to death, Lewis Powell tossed him aside and turned his attention to his father's bedroom door. Assuming he now only had to deal with Seward's daughter, Powell pushed his way into the bedroom, only to be confronted with Sergeant George Robinson, a disabled vet assigned to guard the injured cabinet member. Powell knocked the man sideways with a blow with the butt end of his knife and immediately pounced upon the Secretary of State. Seward evaded two powerful thrusts that plunged deep into the mattress, but the third stab pierced horribly through his cheek, and Powell sensed that he had delivered a mortal blow, blood immediately spurting all over the bedsheets. Awakened by the fracas, Seward's other son, Augustus, ran into the darkened bedroom and saw what he thought was his father grappling with Robinson, who had recovered enough to attempt to remove Powell from the room. Both men fought with the assassin, getting him out into the hallway. Robinson stabbed in the process. As wrestling continued at the top of the stairs, Powell very quietly stated, I'm mad. I'm mad. Believing his task accomplished, the 20-year-old assailant finally released Armstrong from his grip, punched him sideways, and then quickly began to flee down the stairs. On the way, he passed a fleeing State Department courier permanently assigned to the house, Emmerich Hansell, and stuck him in the back with his knife. Emerging into the street, Powell looked for Harold, but his conspirator, alarmed by Bell running out of the residence and Fanny shouting out of an upstairs window, decided that remaining on sight was unwise. He was long gone, leaving Powell to fend for himself. Powell calmly mounted his horse and rode off into the night, Bell chasing him but giving up after a few blocks. To avoid Powell, William Seward rolled off of the mattress and onto the floor, Robinson quickly re-entered the room and picked him up, carefully replacing him onto the bed. Seward was not only alive, he was conscious, and ordered that the police be called and the house locked. His doctor was also summoned and treated all concerned, the most seriously injured Frederick Seward, who suffered a fractured skull. Secretary Seward avoided cuts to any arteries because of a splint on his neck installed after his carriage accident. All concerned would make a full recovery, although Seward's wife would die of a heart attack in June 1865 and his daughter Fanny would succumb to tuberculosis in 1866. The fourth member of the conspiracy was the least capable and also probably the least determined. George Adzerot entered the Kirkwood house at approximately 10 p.m., but immediately repaired to the bar, perhaps to steal himself for the trip to the vice president's unguarded room on the second floor. The more he drank, the worse the idea of murdering Andrew Johnson became. He eventually left the hotel and wandered around Washington, D.C. for much of the night, failing to convince an acquaintance he met on a streetcar to let him sleep at the man's retail store. Although he still had the key to his room at the Kirkwood house, Adzerat finally passed out at the Pennsylvania Hotel at about 2 a.m., this was fortunate, as a detail sent to guard the vice president after the assassination soon broke down the locked door of Adzerat's room and discovered a pistol, knife, and other odd and incriminating items and documents inside. At dawn, Adzarot would successfully slip out of the capital, but his name was already known to authorities, who immediately began to attempt to track him down. Both Booth and Harold had also successfully exited the Central District of Columbia. Booth carefully threaded his way down empty streets away from any revelers, celebrating in large groups, heading southeast as rapidly as possible to the Navy Yard Bridge over the Anacostia River. He arrived as early as 1035 and no later than 1045, only minutes after the assassination and before the news could spread. The bridge, a potentially valuable objective in a time of war, was barricaded and officially no one was permitted to cross after 9 p.m. A sergeant, Silas Cobb, watched as a solitary rider approached Cobb's command post. He hailed the man, who replied nonchalantly, and feigned ignorance about the bridge's closure. Booth remained calm, and despite the obvious fatigue of his horse, Cobb reluctantly let him pass, not wanting to inconvenience a private citizen from reaching home late at night. David Herold's route was less direct. In fact, he briefly considered abandoning the conspiracy entirely and returning to his family home in the city. But he thought better of that option, understanding that any number of individuals or circumstances would implicate him anyway. Only Booth had the means and the personality to extract him from this mess. He soon also found himself confronted by Cobb at the Navy Bridge, Again, the sergeant balked at letting him cross. Only a yarn about spending too much time with a woman got the soldier's sympathy. Soon, Harold was also safely across the river. He quickly caught up with Booth in the vicinity of their meeting point, the actor having slowed down to allow his horse to recuperate. As they picked up the pace intent on the Surratt Tavern, each man must have excitedly discussed the prior events of the evening. Harold stunned by the reality of Lincoln's actual assassination, and Booth upset that Powell was abandoned. Harold probably alibied by claiming he might have been caught if he remained behind, but it was clear that Powell was not going to make it. As far as Adzerat, Harold could offer no insight, not having seen the conspirator since much earlier that evening. Of his three co conspirators, Harold was the most valuable to Booth at this point of his flight. The 22-year-old was an experienced outdoorsman and hunter who knew this area of the Maryland landscape even in the darkness. Although jubilant about his attack, Booth's broken leg was starting to cause him great difficulty. When the pair reached Surrattville, it was Harold who pounded on the door to wake up the already sleeping proprietor of the tavern, John Lloyd. Lloyd retrieved the two rifles and field glasses, most likely mentioned by Mrs. Surratt earlier that evening, but Booth took only the field glasses. His injury wouldn't allow him to hoist a gun. Harold got a bottle of whiskey as well, and he and Booth took some generous swallows before paying the innkeeper a dollar as well as regaling him with the stunning news that they had killed the president and secretary of state. Lloyd was terrified and reacted by beseeching both men to leave as quickly as possible. Booth sensed that his leg needed immediate medical attention, especially if he was to successfully escape. He thought of Dr. Samuel Mudd, but knew Mudd lived in a rural area that is isolated even today near the small town of Bryantown, Maryland. Seventeen miles from Surrattville, it took four hours to get to their destination, and without Harold, Booth never would have found the narrow path that led to the doctor's two-story bright white home. At four in the morning, Harold began to pound on another door that Dr. Mudd warily and eventually answered. Booth hung back just as wary as Mud. Harold explained that there had been a riding accident on the way to Washington, and his companion had broken his leg. Mudd recognized Booth as he emerged from the shadows and helped him up the stairs. Mudd ordered a black hired hand to stable the horses, and Harold and Booth were soon inside. The assassin was obviously in great pain, and the doctor immediately placed him on a couch in a front room. Booth's leg was so swollen that Mud had to slice off the boot, allowing for the simple diagnosis of a broken fibula, fractured about two inches above the ankle. The injury was minor enough to be treated with a makeshift splint fashioned out of a wooden bandbox. Booth said nothing about the assassination, but both he and Harold indicated that they were in a hurry to get to Washington. Eventually, understanding that no one would know their current whereabouts and that the news of the assassination would spread quickly on Saturday morning, Booth determined that he would hide out at Dr. Mudd's and make his escape the following night. Their host led them to a second-floor bedroom, and just after 5 a.m., Booth and Harold quickly fell into a deep sleep. Back in Washington, a much different process was unfolding in the back bedroom of the Peterson House. A vigil of sorts was proceeding at the bedside of Abraham Lincoln. After expelling all but his medical team from the small, stifling room, Dr. Leal and the other doctors examined the president's naked body completely. His only injury was the gunshot wound to the back of his head. Both eyes were closed, but lifting the lids revealed an extremely contracted left pupil and an excessively dilated right pupil, with both unresponsive to light a condition indicative of severe brain injury. Other than applying mustard plasters extensively and covering Lincoln with blankets, there was little that could be done. Mary Todd Lincoln spent most of her time in the front of the house away from the bedroom, her already fragile mentality now bordering on hysteria. An updated prognosis of her husband's impending death was kept from her, but she must have suspected the worst. One of the first senior government officials to arrive on the scene was Secretary of War Edwin Stanton. Stanton had already been to the Seward home after being informed of the attack by a messenger as he prepared for bed. Eventually hearing about the president, Stanton resolved to go to the vicinity of Ford's Theater and take charge of the situation as quickly as possible. Braving the unruly mob milling about on 10th Street, Stanton entered the Peterson House and was initially appalled by the condition of the president. Understanding that Abraham Lincoln's death was imminent, Stanton turned another bedroom into his makeshift headquarters and began taking charge of the government and especially the military response to the assassination. After ordering telegrams to, among others, General Grant notifying him of the assassination, Stanton began an immediate investigation into who who was responsible for what he already considered to be a coordinated, desperate Confederate attempt to murder the leadership of the federal government. Stanton, already perceived as autocratic and combative, soon filled the power vacuum left by Lincoln's assassination. By 3 a.m., even before Lincoln's death, Stanton had implemented coordinated interviews of Ford's theater witnesses that established John Wilkes Booth as the assassin along the eastern seaboard from New York to Maryland, the secretary demanded that his military subordinates immediately search, detain, and arrest any suspicious individuals, especially Booth. Military detachments, including cavalry, began an intensive systematic search focused around the outskirts of the Capitol and southern Maryland. At approximately 7 a.m., Stanton was notified by the doctors, who could do nothing but record the vital signs of the president, that Lincoln's pulse and breathing were weakening and that the end was near. At 7.22, Abraham Lincoln's heart stopped beating. The room remained completely quiet for a few moments before the Lincoln family minister, Dr. Edward Gurley, led an emotional prayer that so overcame the room's inhabitants that it was never recorded. Only Stanton's Now He Belongs to the Ages is remembered today, although even that single sentence is a matter of dispute. Edwin Stanton's next written statement was a one-sentence telegram messengered to the War Department that would announce Lincoln's death to the nation. While Booth and Harold slept in Maryland, and Adzerot made his way to what he thought was the safe hideaway of a relative in rural Maryland, Lewis Powell most likely decided to escape to Baltimore. En route and a few miles from downtown, Powell was violently thrown from his horse, which kept running. Knocked unconscious and in the vicinity of a Union fort, Powell decided to hide in the wooded area near where the accident occurred. Safe for the moment, Powell, on Saturday morning, was able to observe several cavalry columns traversing the thoroughfare near his hiding place, some so close that he concealed himself further by climbing a tree. With no other immediate option, Powell decided to remain in place. As the president lay dying in Washington, at the Mudd household, Dr. Mudd's wife Frances arose at 6 a.m., intent on providing breakfast for her guests. Samuel Mudd got up at about 7, and Harold also came downstairs and ate at the kitchen table. After a seemingly carefree conversation, Harold went back to bed, and Mudd spent the morning improvising a crude pair of crutches for Booth. Although Booth remained in his bedroom, Harold reappeared for lunch and asked Mudd about the possibility of obtaining a carriage so that Booth would have an easier journey. After the meal, they set out for Mudd's father's farm, and when a carriage was unavailable, they pressed on to Bryantown on Harold's suggestion. But only yards from the edge of the village, Harold spotted blue and yellow uniformed cavalrymen already occupying what was a known location for Confederate sympathizers, he hastily told Mudd that Booth probably didn't need a carriage after all and quickly fled back towards Mudd's house, literally leaving the confused doctor behind. Nonplussed, Mudd needed to pick up some household items anyway, so he headed into the village. During the course of his errands, Mudd not only heard about Lincoln's assassination, but also the identity of the man suspected of the killing, John Wilkes Booth. Mudd realized that Booth had lied to him about his presence in the area, and the realization angered him, but not enough to betray the conspirators to the cavalry. However, upon his return to his farm, he confronted Booth with what he knew, and angrily told him that both fugitives would have to leave his residence immediately. But Mudd applied the additional leverage of giving the men the names and locations of two Confederate sympathizers who would help them and directions and a promise not to tell anyone of their visit as long as they left immediately. By sunset Saturday, Booth and Harold were headed away from Mudd's house and towards another possible hiding place, but they got lost in the remote swampland of the area. It took a local they met on the road to get them to the home of Samuel Cox, some cash from Booth serving as motivation. Cox was initially suspicious upon hearing the knock on his door, but eventually agreed to help Booth, full well-knowing the assassin's identity. But Cox knew harboring the men in his home was wildly risky. He ordered an employee to take them to a remote nearby wooded area known as the Pine Thicket and convinced Booth that he would locate the one man who could still probably get the conspirators across the Potomac, Confederate agent Thomas A. Jones. Early on Easter morning, Cox sent his son to ask Jones to come and see him. Jones, high on any federal list of rebel collaborators in the region, had already been aggressively confronted by Union soldiers who told him of the assassination and the probability that the assassin was in the neighborhood. Jones already had an idea of why Cox wanted to meet. Although he rationally understood that the Confederate cause was dead, he did not like the idea of throwing another compatriot to the wolves. He immediately set out for Cox's farm where his premonition was confirmed. Jones agreed in theory to try and get Booth to safety, but he wasn't quite sure yet how to make this happen. He knew Southern Maryland, especially the area near the Potomac, was already teeming with federal troops and law enforcement. The pine thicket was so dense that visibility was less than 30 feet. Jones entered the area carefully, not wanting to get shot by the armed fugitives. Even so, as he penetrated this remote wilderness, he was confronted by a carbine and toting David Herold, who was eventually satisfied that Jones had been sent by Cox. Jones quickly convinced both men that their only hope was to wait for the federal troops who were actively searching the area to move on. Only patience and time would allow for a successful river crossing and the safety of Virginia and points south. For three days, Jones faithfully delivered food blankets, and other provisions to the two fugitives, as well as another item Booth specifically requested-newspapers. Booth wanted to hear how he was perceived in the aftermath of his crime. He was taken aback when instead of heroic, his deed was uniformly scorned as that of a cowardly, barbaric demon. Even individuals associated geographically or politically with the Confederacy were appalled and horrified by the assassination. Much worse, Lincoln was now perceived as a glorious martyr. Despite this nationwide revulsion, Jones stuck with his promise to help Booth. His loyalty was probably prompted by his own experience when, imprisoned briefly after being caught illegally crossing the Potomac, his farm was occupied by Union troops. His wife and children were sequestered on a tiny part of his property, and soldiers commandeered anything of value or sustenance. Upon his return to his wrecked residence, Jones learned that his beloved spouse had died during childbirth, a development that hardened him greatly. Behind his stoic, laconic bearing, Jones was a very determined and resourceful individual. Union troops were probably watching one of his boats tied up very publicly along the river, but another smaller fishing dinghy was secreted in a more remote location. Jones had a black servant develop a daily fishing routine that eventually got the vessel to a location near Booth and Herald. On one of his morning visits, Jones also informed Booth that his horses were a liability. Hungry and stressed, they were noisy enough to be heard by any patrols that might suddenly search the thicket's vicinity. He suggested that they be killed immediately, and Booth reluctantly agreed. With the help of Cox's overseer, David Harold led the animals into a deep bog and shot both of them in the head, the horses fully equipped, eventually sinking entirely into the mud. So remote is this area even today that their skeletons have never been located. On late Monday, April 17th, while Booth and Harold shivered in the woods, Lewis Powell, extremely hungry and thirsty, after three days without any sustenance, decided that he would try to reach the one sanctuary in Washington, D.C. that might still remain. Fashioning a stocking cap out of a sleeve of a shirt and obtaining a small pickaxe, Powell attempted a masquerade as a menial laborer as he successfully made his way back to the Surratt boarding house. Unfortunately, he arrived late on Monday night, just as federal authorities were conducting a raid and arrest of all of the current female inhabitants, including Mary Surratt and her daughter, Anna. Stanton was not pleased with the pace of the investigation, and he demanded that any individuals who were personally acquainted with Booth be rounded up and harshly questioned. Literally, as a carriage was summoned to take the detainees to military headquarters, a man walked up to the front door, rang the bell and knocked. Two officers opened and induced Powell to enter, immediately suspicious of his story that he had been hired by Mrs. Surratt to dig a trench. At 11 o'clock at night? Powell protested that he merely wanted to find out what time he should begin work in the morning, but his suspicious story, refusal to provide a local address and clothes unbefitting a menial laborer, immediately sparked further scrutiny. When asked to confirm Powell's information, Mrs. Surratt, although recognizing him as one of the many conspirators present during Booth's meetings, blundered terribly by swearing that she had no idea who he was. Somebody was obviously lying. Investigators arrested Powell, who was quickly identified by the servant Bell and Augustus Seward. Samuel Arnold, Michael O'Laughlin, and even stagehand Edmund Spangler were also arrested, Stanton reasoning that Booth could never have escaped without the help of theater employees. While the investigation was picking up momentum, Booth's whereabouts still remained frustratingly unknown. It was not until the night of Thursday, April 20th, that Jones felt comfortable with attempting to get Booth and Harold across the river. It would be a cloudy, misty evening, and Jones had spent time in some of the local taverns listening to soldiers mistakenly stating that Booth was sighted in another Maryland county and might have already crossed the Potomac. With federal attention elsewhere, it was now or never. Jones personally retrieved the two fugitives from the thicket, put Booth on his horse, and had Harold hold the horse's reins and follow on foot. Fifty yards ahead, the guide would periodically whistle to the two men when it was safe to continue. This laborious process continued along isolated paths and part of a public road for three miles, until finally Jones successfully got to the isolated mooring along the Potomac. With great difficulty, Harold and Jones lifted Booth into the 11-foot skiff. Harold got in as well. Booth attempted to pay his benefactor, but Jones would only accept $18, the cost of the boat. After an emotional goodbye from Booth, Thomas Jones pushed the craft into the river and safely made his way back to his farm, his mission complete. Unfortunately, Harold and Booth immediately got confused while on the river and instead of heading southwest to Virginia, wound up heading due west, unintentionally rowing in the complete darkness towards another southern peninsula of Maryland. Knowing that they had to hide on land once daylight commenced, the two landed near a creek that Harold recognized. More importantly, it was near the farm of John Hughes, an acquaintance of Harold's and a Confederate sympathizer. Although historical accounts differ as to the reception Booth and Harold received from Hughes, it was definitely made clear to the two fugitives that they would have to immediately attempt to cross the river again. Inexplicably, Booth and Harold did nothing on Friday night, April 21st. They hid throughout Saturday and waited until sundown to attempt to reach Virginia. It was not until early Sunday morning, after narrowly eluding several federal gunboats, that the small skiff successfully reached the southern side of the Potomac. Thomas Jones had given the two men the name of Elizabeth Quisenberry, another Confederate operative, and Harold set out for her home, leaving Booth concealed with the boat. Quisenberry provided a meal and horses, and quickly passed the two along to a succession of wary individuals who ultimately deposited the fugitives with William Lucas, a black farmhand who lived in a nearby remote cabin. Lucas wanted no part of any late-night visitors, but Booth, with the help of his underground contact, forced his way into the cabin and proclaimed that he would be staying, removing his still blood-stained knife from his waistband for extra emphasis. On the morning of Monday, April 24th, Booth paid Lucas to rent a carriage to take him to Port Conway and a ferry crossing over the Rappahannock River. Lucas insisted that his son drive the carriage so that the younger Lucas could return with it after the trip. Charlie Lucas only too gladly dropped off the two men in Port Conway, near the ferry, at the residence of William Rollins. Harold approached Rollins, visible in his yard, on the verge of heading out in his boat with his fishing nets. He listened to Harold's new well-rehearsed tale of being a wayward, recently surrendered Confederate soldier, and agreed to take him and anybody else across the river on his boat. But they would have to wait until he finished fishing. Despite their impatience, Booth and Harold had little choice but to cool their heels. They did not wish to risk the public ferry, as their descriptions might already have been distributed. As they waited, three individuals dressed in Confederate uniforms also approached the vicinity of the river crossing. Two teenage privates and a lieutenant named William Jett, Absalom Bainbridge, and Mortimer Ruggles were on their way to Bowling Green, Virginia. Jett, who was from the area, was intent on visiting a romantic interest. They let it be known to Harold that they were also formerly with Mosby's Raiders, by definition especially zealous and effective Confederate partisans. Harold then took a chance and explained secretly who they were, the, quote, assassinators of Abraham Lincoln, unquote. The fugitive then proposed to travel with the soldiers, who agreed to help them, at least as far as the other side of the river, the town of Port Royal. Booth then informed William Rollins that he would use the public ferry and the five men shortly crossed on the boat, pulled by a local former slave. Jett was initially successful in finding a place for Booth to stay in Port Royal at the home of Sarah Payton, who agreed to take in what she thought was a wounded Confederate veteran but Booth entering her parlor so unnerved the young woman that she told Jet that she could not entertain an adult male while her father was away. Most likely it was the sight of the assassin, now utterly filthy and disheveled after a week and a half on the run and a long way away from his usual electrifying presence that caused her to change her mind. Instead, she suggested that they take Booth to the Garrett Farm several miles south of the town. Richard Garrett, the farm's proprietor, readily agreed to take in Booth. Two of his sons were also Confederate veterans just recently returned from the war. Harold continued with Bainbridge into Bowling Green, wanting to get a pair of new shoes. It would be the first and only time that he and Booth separated during their flight. The actor was invited to supper before he went to sleep in one of the home's bedrooms. On April 25th, Tuesday, Booth smoked his pipe on the Garrett Farm's front porch and interacted with the Garrett children. He was in a good mood until the topic of the assassination came up around the dinner table. Garrett's son, Will, said he wished Lincoln's killer would come in his direction so he could turn him in for the reward. Richard Garrett was also disdainful of the act. It now would have to be painfully clear to Booth that even here among the common people of Virginia, there was aversion to his deed. He would never be the heroic figure he perceived himself to be. After eating his meal, Booth sat out on the porch and grew visibly nervous as he saw the approach of horses along the main road. Quite agitated, he asked one of the Garrett's sons to quickly retrieve his gun belt and two pistols, but it turned out to be Ruggles and Bainbridge dropping off David Harold, who quickly materialized on the dirt road that led to the farmhouse. Booth met him in the yard, and it was clear that Harold's overnight hiatus had affected him. He expressed a desire to leave and go back home to his family. Knowing that this wasn't possible at the moment, he resolved against his better judgment to remain at the Garrett Farmhouse. But even Harold sensed that it was a bad idea to stay immobile for so long. They should have already left the area. Harold and Booth became greatly concerned when, at about 4 p.m., Ruggles and Bainbridge returned to warn them that a Union cavalry detachment had just landed at Port Royal and was headed down the main road. The presence of this cavalry detachment was the result of faulty intelligence that accidentally led to the discovery of Booth's whereabouts. Like most high profile, multi jurisdictional crime investigations, the manhunt for John Wilkes Booth involved many entities of the armed forces and local, state, and national police. The War Department served as a clearinghouse for tips and information concerning Booth's potential location. On April 24th, The head of the War Department Telegraph Office received information that stated specifically that two men were observed crossing the Potomac on April 16th. As federal investigators had finally determined through Dr. Mudd's own confession that Booth was at Dr. Mudd's on the 15th and left shortly thereafter, it made sense that Booth would have crossed the river the next day. Edwin Stanton got one of his most controversial but effective detectives involved, Lafayette Baker. Baker was known to ignore such legal niceties as the need for a search warrant and wasn't above brutalizing a suspect if the situation called for it. Stanton was impatient, and despite the arrest of some of the actual conspirators, including Powell and Adzerat, who had finally been captured at a relative's farm, he wanted Booth apprehended. While the public thought of the assassin as a villainous scoundrel, his flight and ability to evade capture electrified the nation. With much of the search focusing on southern Maryland, Lafayette Baker assembled unassigned members of the 16th New York Cavalry Unit and had a steamer take them to Belle Plaine, Virginia. If Booth and his companion had crossed near this location, surely some inhabitants of the area would be aware of it. Interested in making a case for collecting some of the $100,000 reward offered for Booth's capture, Lafayette Baker assigned his own cousin, Luther, to the detachment that Booth and Harold were hiding in the Pine Thicket in the aftermath of their visit to Dr. Mudd and that the April 16th sighting couldn't be the assassins was not known to Stanton and Baker. Most importantly, the cavalry units' rapid and ruthless sweep through the region would quickly take them to the Port Conway, Port Royal area, a major river junction that any reasonable investigator would assume Booth had traversed. So it was that on the afternoon of April 25th, the 16th Cavalry Detachment entered Port Conway and observed William Rollins in the vicinity of his house. Luther Baker himself engaged Rollins in a conversation, and when the local resident was asked about any men on crutches recently passing through the area, he readily mentioned that yes, just the day before a man with a broken leg had arrived by carriage with another individual. Baker had pictures of John Surratt, Booth, and David Herold, and Rollins identified the latter two as the men who had crossed the previous day. But Rollins had more information. He told Baker that the two men were traveling in the company of three Confederate soldiers, and one of these soldiers was familiar to him and was named Willie Jett. Rollins's wife added that Jett was known to be courting the daughter of an innkeeper in Bowling Green. Most likely, he was probably still staying at this inn known as the Star Hotel. Baker resolved to get to the Star as quickly as possible, and he demanded that Rollins accompany them. The informer agreed, but only if Baker made it look as if he had been arrested and was not voluntarily cooperating with the Yankees. Rollins wasn't sure of what his neighbors would think of that idea, and he wanted to protect his family from future retribution. Because the ferry was limited in size, it took several hours to get the men and horses to the Port Royal side of the river. Eventually, the unit was ready to move out to Bowling Green as quickly as possible. They would pass right by the front entrance to the Garrett Farm, but were so intent on the Star Hotel, the unit did not bother with searching much of anything on the way. Booth and Harold were aware of the cavalry as it passed through the neighborhood, and the reaction, as well as Booth's earlier insistence that his pistols be brought to him as a stranger approached, alarmed the Garrett family. Harold's blatant lying about his alleged service in the Confederate Army further aroused skepticism. Although the Garretts did not know the identities or deeds of their guests, they presumed them to be on the run and potentially dangerous. After serving the two conspirators their dinner, it was made clear to both men that they were no longer welcome and could not sleep in the house. Booth protested that he had nowhere to go and at least got the family to allow him to sleep in the tobacco shed. Fearing that the two men might steal horses and leave in the middle of the night, the Garretts surreptitiously locked the door to the structure, effectively trapping Booth inside. The 19th New York did not even get to Bowling Green until 11 p.m. on the night of April 25th. They quickly surrounded the Star Hotel and took Jett into custody, threatening him with dire consequences if he did not tell all. Such an approach was unnecessary. The young man gave detectives the exact location of the Garrett Farm and even volunteered to guide them back to the main house, a helpful suggestion in the middle of the night. Baker and company were mortified that they had already passed Booth's location, concerned that their presence might alarm the assassin into fleeing to another location. As quickly as possible, the unit then returned to the Garrett Farm, and leaving Jett and Rollins under guard by the entrance, began banging on the front door of the Garrett Farmhouse. It was approximately 2.30 in the morning. In the barn, Booth heard the approaching soldiers and immediately woke up Harold. They grabbed their guns and tried to get out of the shed's front door, only to discover that it was locked. Knowing that they were rapidly running out of time before they were surrounded, Booth and Harold tried to kick out the wood at the rear of the structure, but were unable to do so. Booth then told Harold to lie still and try to fool the troops into thinking that they had left. At the main house, Richard Garrett, still in nightclothes and standing on his front porch, was reluctant to betray his guests despite his earlier suspicions. Having no idea of the magnitude of Booth's crime, he was not comfortable turning anyone over to the Yankees, no matter what the fugitives had done. Baker and another detective, Everett Conger, were growing frustrated knowing that every second was crucial. They produced a rope and even threatened to hang Richard Garrett from the nearest tree and burn down his entire property if he did not reveal where Booth was. This threat was too much for Richard Garrett's son, John, who finally explained that Booth was in the tobacco barn, one of several smaller structures on the property. The military officer in charge, Lieutenant Edward Doherty, grabbed John Garrett, dragged him down the porch steps, put a revolver to his head, and demanded that the young man take them to the exact location. Only seconds later, the cavalry unit surrounded the barn, Harold stupidly ignoring Booth and moving about in the hay noise that Conger could hear and confirming that the suspects were still present. Although Doherty had 26 well-armed cavalrymen at his disposal, instead of storming the structure and overwhelming the opposition at this decisive moment, the detachment hesitated, first sending John Garrett into the barn to convince the men to surrender and then attempting to talk to Booth himself. Booth refused to come out, first threatening to shoot John Garrett and then stalling when the detectives demanded his surrender. Predictably, the detectives then threatened to torch the barn with the men inside. This was too much for Harold, who was probably looking to surrender anyway, believing that he personally hadn't really done much of anything criminal to begin with. He asked to surrender, and despite initial demands that he also surrender the carbine the Carrots had told them about, Harold ultimately walked out of the now unlocked front door of the barn unarmed, Doherty seizing him by the wrists and leading him away. During their back-and-forth conversations, it became clear that Booth would not surrender and would attempt to kill any soldiers who entered the barn. Baker and Conger decided to set the structure on fire before daybreak. Once the sun came up, they would all be visible sitting ducks for Booth's carbine. The garrets were then ordered to gather any available kindling and place it along the exterior of the building, which Conger eventually lit. Very quickly, the boards of the large shed were burning rapidly. It was possible to even see glimpses of Booth as he first scurried around attempting to put out the fire and then withdrawing to the center of the structure, as far from flame as possible. Three times during the negotiations that led up to this conclusion, a cavalry sergeant named Thomas Boston Corbett offered to enter the barn and subdue Booth one-on-one. This suicidal request was ignored, but Corbett covertly involved himself by sneaking up to the side of the barn and observing Booth through cracks in the timber. Seeing Booth in the barn's interior and waiting until the opportunity presented itself, Corbett, completely on his own and without orders, shot the assassin with his revolver. Booth fell to the ground and attempted to get up, but was unable to move. Upon hearing the shot, the lead detectives and Doherty scrambled into the barn and quickly disarmed the helpless fugitive who was alive but wounded through the neck and unable to move. Booth was taken from the burning barn and first placed on the grass at a safe distance. As the structure burned to the ground, he was then relocated to a straw mattress the Garrett family provided on the porch where Booth had spent much of the previous two days. It was clear that he was in great pain and so paralyzed that when Conger attempted to give him a tin cup of water, he could not swallow and had to spit it out. A local doctor was summoned but described the wound as mortal and the assassin's death as imminent. Booth was in such agony that he pleaded repeatedly in a faint voice for the soldiers to kill him. Conger refused. There was nothing to do but wait for the inevitable. As this remarkable drama played out in a remote corner of rural Virginia... The rest of the nation was transfixed by the ongoing memorial to Abraham Lincoln, a locomotive publicly conveying a nine-car funeral train containing the president's coffin from Washington through six states, ultimately destined for Springfield, Illinois, where the president was to be interred on May 4th. Periodically, the train would stop and Lincoln's coffin would lie in state in various large cities along the route. As Booth lay dying, thousands of residents of Albany, New York, had already started filing into the State Capitol building, open since one o'clock in the morning, to pay their respects to the martyred President. While this solemn process transpired, hundreds of miles away, Booth lapsed in and out of consciousness, several times, and finally died at approximately seven a.m., just after sunrise. Instead of the magnificent funeral procession assembled for Abraham Lincoln, John Wilkes Booth's body was placed in a makeshift army blanket shroud and tossed in a rickety wagon, commandeered for the purpose of getting him as hastily as possible to Washington, D.C. Detective Baker would accompany the corpse back to the steamboat that conveyed the cavalry detachment to Belle Plaine. This boat would transport Booth's body to the ironclad USS Montauk on direct orders from Edwin Stanton. It was everton conger who shrewdly decided to head directly to the war department to inform stanton of booth's capture and death as proof that it was indeed booth who was being conveyed to the montauk conger removed personal items from the body including the assassin's daybook diary compass bills of exchange and even souvenir photos of booth's female love interests while hiding in the woods Booth occupied his time by writing a justification for his actions, including reproducing the unpublished letter he had given to his actor friend Matthews. After reading some of the impassioned comments in the date book, and after receiving official confirmation from an inquest held on the Montauk, Stanton felt comfortable releasing a bulletin from the War Department on April 27th announcing basic details about the circumstances of Booth's death and Harold's capture. The vengeful Secretary of War would then begin a period of punishment and retribution, initially visited on anyone connected to the assassination, and ultimately upon the former Confederacy itself. Stanton pressured President Andrew Johnson to hold a rapid military tribunal, the justification that the assassination was a conspiracy perpetuated by the Confederacy to prolong the Civil War. This tribunal charged eight individual defendants for crimes related to Lincoln's murder. While incarcerated, these defendants were initially placed in irons aboard the USS Montauk and ultimately in the Arsenal prison under severe conditions in which all but Dr. Mudd and Mary Surratt were forced to wear uncomfortable woolen hoods and forbidden to speak. Harold, Atzerott, Powell, and Mrs. Surratt were convicted of numerous charges and sentenced to hang. Dr. Mudd, Michael O'Laughlin, and Samuel Arnold were convicted on On serious enough charges to receive life imprisonment, even Edward Ned Spangler, who unwittingly aided Booth in secreting the assassin's horse, was convicted of helping Booth escape, earning him a six-year prison stint. The execution of the four condemned conspirators, occurred on July 7, 1865, only two days after the official conclusion of the tribunal and only a week after the end of the trial itself, a rather hasty outcome subsequent to a proceeding that heard 366 witnesses and generated a 4,900-page transcript. Even within the government itself, the process was controversial, especially the sentence of Mrs. Surratt, who was destined to become the first American female ever executed. Various attempts were made to commute her sentence, but Andrew Johnson refused to even meet with relatives or officially consider these requests. At one in the afternoon, on a blazingly hot summer day, the four prisoners were led into the courtyard of the Arsenal prison, paraded in front of their own eventual coffins and freshly dug graves, and simultaneously hanged from a makeshift wooden platform, the entire process photographed by famous Civil War photographer Alexander Gardner. As a final indignity, Stanton refused to release the bodies of the executed, instead insisting on burying them on the grounds of the prison. The secretary had forbidden the release of Booth's body, already deposited in a prison storeroom. Mudd, O'Laughlin, Spangler, and Arnold were sent to Fort Jefferson, a forbidding, sweltering, mosquito-infested fortress located on the Dry Tortugas, 60 miles off the coast of Key West, Florida. The eight conspirators were not the only individuals swept up in the hysterical anger that followed the assassination. Although Edwin Booth was a well-known supporter of the Union cause, the attitudes of his brother Junius were not as clear, and this relative of the assassin was arrested and briefly held in the old Capitol prison with other persons of interest after the assassination, including Booth's brother-in-law. All three of the brothers who owned and operated Ford's Theater were detained and the theater seized by the government. After a month and a half, the Fords were released and eventually received compensation for their property, but John T. Ford, embittered by the experience, relocated to his native Baltimore. It would be a century before the theater that bears his name would hold another theatrical performance. One individual who completely escaped official sanction was Booth's executioner, Boston Corbett. When angrily confronted by Everton Conger only minutes after Booth was shot, Corbett was completely forthcoming claiming that it was the hand of God that directed the act. For anyone who knew the sergeant, this was not an insignificant statement. Corbett was so fanatically religious that he had previously castrated himself to avoid the temptation of the devil, which he believed omnipresent. Corbett had also not violated any order prohibiting such a shooting, and he maintained that he believed that Booth was about to start blasting away. Conger, D'Arty and Baker officially shrugged and passed the buck to the Secretary of War, While Booth's shooting only added to the many conspiracy theories surrounding the assassination, Corbett was never disciplined and actually received part of the official reward money. He enjoyed brief celebrity, always refusing to sell the weapon that killed Booth, only to have it stolen and permanently lost to history. He moved to Kansas, securing a job as a doorkeeper for the Kansas House of Representatives in 1887 only to lose this position a year later after threatening members of this body at gunpoint. Placed in a mental institution, he escaped, and while his official fate is unknown, it is believed that he probably died in the Great Hinckley, Minnesota Fire of 1894. Mental illness also plagued another major participant in the assassination. Although Henry Rathbone would ultimately marry Clara Harris, his mental condition was Possibly influenced by his obsessive guilt over his perceived failure to prevent the assassination, deteriorated. He resigned from the army and struggled professionally and personally, becoming more and more hostile to his wife over imagined infidelity. Perhaps to provide him with a fresh start, in 1882 Rathbone received an appointment to a diplomatic post in the German province of Hanover. A year later, he would shoot and stab his wife to death and unsuccessfully attempt suicide. Confined to a German mental institution, he died in 1911 and was buried next to his wife in Hanover. Almost as unfortunate as Rathbone's story was the fate of the Garretts and their farm. Richard Garrett petitioned the federal government for reimbursement for the burned barn and tobacco curing tools destroyed during Booth's capture. He was officially labeled an enemy sympathizer in a time of war, and his claim was rejected. The farm was eventually abandoned, the Garrett family shunned by their neighbors as complicit in Booth's capture and death. The notorious property was a popular landmark for tourists and eventually sold, but it remained unoccupied and deteriorated until the farmhouse, by now completely derelict, was bulldozed in the 1940s by the land's new owner, the federal government. Today, the site of the Garrett Farm is an empty clearing within the wooded median of a busy four-lane Virginia State Highway a single historical marker on the side of the road, the only acknowledgement of the historic location. It would not be long before attitudes concerning the assassination would soften. This would be evidenced by the trial of John Surratt Jr., finally captured after flight took him to military service in Italy. Brought back to face trial in a civilian court, Surratt was cut loose after a jury failed to reach a verdict certainly as involved and knowledgeable as anybody concerned with the initial conspiracy. Surratt lived for another 50 years. The political turmoil that followed the Civil War also influenced the ultimate fate of some of the assassination conspirators. In fact, the impeachment of Andrew Johnson stemmed directly from his conflict with Edwin Stanton and his attempts to remove the powerful Lincoln holdover from the government. When this impeachment effort failed by one vote, Stanton resigned in 1868 and died in 1869. Johnson already had pardoned the remaining living Lincoln conspirators, publicly based on Dr. Mudd's conduct in helping to combat a yellow fever epidemic and thousands of petitioners who asked for clemency for Arnold and Spangler, believing them to be victims of an overly zealous prosecution. Privately, Johnson may have wanted to snub Stanton on the way out of the White House, his conflict with the Secretary of War over reconstruction policy and the treatment of former slaves a major cause of his unpopularity and failure to even be renominated. Unfortunately, this pardon came too late for Michael O'Laughlin, who died of yellow fever in prison in 1867. Of the many individuals affected by John Wilkes Booth's assassination, two notables would remain anonymous for many years. The location of Booth during his first week of flight and who assisted him during this time period remained a mystery until a journalist who had written extensively about the case uncovered Thomas A. Jones. George Alfred Townsend was able to convince Jones to tell his story in 1883. Most notable was his explanation for why, in spite of a $100,000 reward and the acclaim that he would receive for turning Booth in, Jones didn't betray the president's assassin. He simply believed that once Cox asked him to safeguard Booth and he gave his word that he would, it was a matter of his personal honor to protect this wretched individual, regardless of the consequences. Jones was in his 60s at the time of the interview and wished to tell his story before he passed on. He lived for another 13 years and eventually wrote his own account of the Pine Thicket Affair in 1893. Senator John Parker Hale was especially determined to keep any connection between Booth and his daughter Lucy out of the public realm. He was present at the inauguration of Andrew Johnson and met privately with the president shortly afterwards, a meeting which successfully served to remove Lucy Hale from any official investigation. The Washington Press Corps also withheld publishing anything about the relationship, based on both prevailing attitudes towards such a socially prominent female and the risk of incurring the wrath of a powerful politician. Letters exchanged between Lucy and Booth were destroyed, and no documents in Senator Hale's collection of papers donated to the New Hampshire State Historical Society contained family correspondence from the same time period of April through June of 1865, clearly an attempt to erase the relationship. The five souvenir photographs of women that were retrieved from John Wilkes Booth's body were secreted in the War Department archives, and as late as 1891, a journalist was told that he could copy all of them, with the exception of Lucy Hale. By then, she was married to William E. Chandler, also a U.S. Senator from the state of New Hampshire. As another of his final official acts, in 1869, Andrew Johnson also released the bodies of the deceased members of the conspiracy to their families. This included John Wilkes Booth, who was eventually buried in what would become the family plot at Greenmount Cemetery in Baltimore. Today, on the obelisk that dominates this location, the word John Wilkes appear on a list dedicated to the memory of the children of Junius and Mary Ann Booth. Although this is a far cry from the memorial that the assassin personally anticipated, his impact on the course of American history remains monumentally indelible. Thank you for listening to part two of this podcast about John Wilkes Booth. Much of the information for this podcast came from the books Manhunt by James L. Swanson and Fortune's Fool, The Life of John Wilkes Booth by Terry Alford. There are also additional photographs, bibliographical and musical information at someveryfamouspeople.com. If you have enjoyed this presentation, please like us at our Facebook page, Some Very Famous People, and follow us on Twitter at Philip D. Gibbons. Also rate us on iTunes, and if you have the time, leave a brief review. A link is provided at the website.